You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, happy Father's Day. How many of the dads in the room have got a letter or a hug or a gift or something from the family today? Show of hands. All right, let me tell you about mine. Um, about six years ago, I got this soft cooler uh, for Christmas, a soft cooler made by Yeti, and um, two weeks ago, it finally gave out. And so uh, I said to the family, I said, hey, guys, I'd, I'd love to get another one because I want one of them backpack coolers, small one. Friday, I asked Jen, I said, hey, did you order that yet? <laughs> and she said, uh, Tim, that thing's on back order. They don't make them anymore. It's, I said, I know you're kidding with me because you wouldn't wait till Friday to tell me that. It's coming Sunday, and yesterday morning I woke up early, leaned over from bed, and said, hey, can I go ahead and open that today? And she said, Tim, I'm telling you, you're going to get your hopes if you didn't get it. And so, uh, sure enough, like yesterday came and gone, and last night, told the whole family, y'all can go ahead and bring it to me. <laughs> and uh, it's still not here. And so I told Jen, I'm going to tell this story one more time today at this service. And I'm going to hold it hostage. You can bring it, and I won't tell it. And she said, Tim, I'm telling you it's not coming, so I'm telling the story. If anybody <laughs> has access to uh, getting one of those, apparently they, they like, uh, did a recall on them because they were magnets at the top. And apparently you could swallow a magnet. So my dream cooler is no more. Um, but I know they've all got something big for me. I cannot wait. <laughs> All right, let's begin today. Have you ever experienced anything like this? Uh, all of us in this room have kind of probably put ourselves in a predicament where we got in a situation similar to this, whether it was with, uh, to the guys in the room. I had a John boat years ago, and I was notorious for taking that John boat down the river. And I would tie it up, and I'd go wade, because I like to, to wade fish. And uh, I'd come back, and the water dropped out, and that boat would just be sitting there on dry land. Um, I've done it with trucks, I've done it with cars. Everybody's been in a situation like this where there's no getting anywhere. You turn the wheels and you press the gas, it just goes deeper. Your only hope is to kind of find some sort of traction. Let's say you dig out a little bit in the front of the tire, behind the tire. Uh, let's say you've got sand or even kitty litter. I mean, that's, that's a real deal. You can take out the floor mats and put them underneath. And if you're still not going anywhere, you've got people, hopefully, Someone that can push and pull, and it gets nasty, right? But eventually, if, if, you, um, if you can't budget, you've got two choices. You can tow it, or you can just walk away. Everybody knows what it's like, probably in some form or fashion in life, to, to be stuck. I want us to talk about this today, because the issue I want to address is tied to the, the topic of being stuck, and that is how do you get unstuck? I think we all know, everyone in this room knows that it takes an enormous amount of effort to get unstuck. And obviously, we're not talking about vehicles or boats or some type of transportation. We're talking about you and we're talking about me. Uh, we're talking about when we get in a space where we find ourselves just stuck, not going anywhere. And we know it's going to take a huge work to get out. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to look at a story where the nation of Israel is stuck. Um, they're, in a, they're stuck in a spiritual drift, like a spiritual decline. What's taken place, um, they've slowly veered off course from worshiping God because of the royal couple, Ahab and Jezebel. By the way, 
there are two people in the Bible you never name your kids after one. Don't ever name your daughter Jezebel. Don't ever name your son Judas. Um, it just won't work, all right? We've got a guy on staff that thinks he's going to name his, well, he entertained it. He didn't do it. Uh, named Jezebel because he wanted to redeem the name. Uh, he could have redeemed the name, but if she'd have met a Judas, he'd have been bothered. So I wouldn't suggest naming Jezebel or Judas. But Jezebel and Ahab get married, and um, it's this political alliance, this arranged marriage, because Jezebel is from an area called Phoenicia. It's like this powerful trade port city. They got all the momentum, and so this arranged marriage uh, creates an alliance, a political alliance. Jezebel comes down to Israel for the marriage, but she brings something with her. She brings an aggressive pursuit of a foreign god called Baal. She even brings some of the foreign god priests with her that she employs. What takes place is this god is slowly creeping into the nation. And it's a god, it's a false god that, that's worshipped for the idea of fertility, for rain, for crops to grow. Now, the concept of Baal, this false god, had been around much longer than Jezebel. But Jezebel became a poster child. Um, so much so that she paid 450 of the prophets of Baal to come with her. So much so that these prophets of Baal and Jezebel herself slowly made it against the law to worship the one true God of Israel. Meaning, now the prophets of God, who have been like pastors in the area, they're all in hiding. They're scared to death for their life. If they were to say a word, then their lives would be done. You've got to ask the question, how bad was it? Well, it's this bad. It's almost become the national religion for Israel. Like Baal has grown that much. So if you were walking through a town or a village and you decided to eavesdrop into a small home and you would listen carefully to the prayer, you would hear someone say, give thanks to Baal for he's good and his mercy endures forever. For all practical purposes on behalf of the nation of Israel, guess what? They're stuck. And it will take an enormous amount of effort to get them unstuck. And today we get to see this prophet. A prophet arrives on the scene with one job, to get the people from unstuck to started. Meaning the space that they're in, the whole goal is just to help, help them get unstuck, to get from stuck to started. And as we look at this story, um, I can't help but think of this image again. When you see this image, does it bring anything to mind in your life that you're stuck in? And perhaps for some it's apathy. Like you stopped caring a long time ago. You joined the ranks of the, the terminally disillusioned when it comes to life. You're, you're almost a professional critic. You stopped caring and you don't tend to care anytime around the corner. You've just lost it. You're, you've embraced apathy. Perhaps someone in this room, it's gone further and it's to the point of despair. Like it's one thing to be discouraged. Discouragement comes and goes, but despair, it comes and it stays. Like, um, despair is when you look to the future and you cannot envision, envision the future with hope. It feels like your best days are always behind you. As perhaps some are stuck in this area of despair or apathy, or, or some in this room perhaps are stuck with an activity that slowly grew to a behavior that became a habit, and now it's an addiction. And you're stuck in this area. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to get undone. Because it's become a pattern in your life. No matter what the space is that you're stuck in. And no matter where it is. I've been praying this week that you would find hope through this story. A story we're going to read about the nation of Israel getting stuck and moving from stuck 
started to eventually getting unstuck. There are four parts in this story in 1 Kings 17 and 18. And as we look at the, the four parts, there are four parts that are tied to you and to me when we find ourselves in that space that we don't want to be in. The first, the first phase is a drought. When you hear the word drought, you can't help but think of an image like this. Because during Ahab and Jezebel's reign over the nation of Israel, slowly the people of Israel sold themselves over to the prophet of Baal. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah steps on the scene with courage, even though it's against the law to do this. And he asks them, do you really want to go here? Verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Meaning for the next three years, there's going to be a drought. So you think about it, if you're in the nation of Israel, if that's your family, that's your livelihood, year one, you plant. There's no rain, no harvest. Year two, you plant, there's no rain, there's no harvest. Think about it, after two years, year three, do you even plant? Like Israel is facing a national disaster. It's a crisis. Everyone's without food. We know what it's like when America gets hit with something like this, a drought, and we see the the effects with uh, forest fires, we see the effects with crops. But imagine for an entire nation that's in turmoil. You ask the question, what happens on behalf of this drought? Well, what you see, according to the text, is God withdraws his blessing on Israel because of the decision they've made. And even God withholds his blessings on Israel because of the decisions that they made. Something important for us to be aware of, there are all kinds of difficult things that happen in life. And it doesn't always mean that God is disciplining you. Like for some in this room, perhaps... It's an accident, perhaps it's an upheaval, perhaps it's a crisis, it's a lost job, maybe it's treatments, maybe it's bad news, maybe it's mistreatment by someone you love. Sometimes difficulty isn't tied to our behavior, and sometimes it is. Israel had turned away from God. They turned away from God to Baal, and understand this drought was disciplinary. You gotta ask the question, okay, what kind of drought can God send into my life if I reject him, if I defy him, if I ignore him, if I turn my back to him for someone else or something else? What kind of drought could he send? The answer is any kind that he wants to. Some in this room are kind of bothered by that. You're thinking, well, Tim, that's not the God that I know about. The God that I know about is unconditionally loving, like he loves no matter what. Um, Like Tim, you'd give me the example. Remember the prodigal son? Like after he did all he did, he came back and he got the, the warm, unconditional embrace from his dad. Yes, that's absolutely, absolutely true. But if you actually retrace the story, I want you to think how it unfolded. A son asked for his father's inheritance early. He went away to a different country. He spent it quick. He ran out of cash. And when you read, when you read the text carefully, it says this. A time of famine came. Which caused the boy to go back home to his father. Now understand, in the midst of the whole story, that boy still has the love of his dad, but he's not enjoying the blessings of his dad's home. Meaning, he had made decisions to go back home because of a drought, a famine. And God had caused that. He either withdrew his blessing or he withheld his blessing. And the famine served as a trigger to get the boy to respond back to the father. You see, there is unconditional love. And there are conditional blessings. 
So the first phase that we see is a drought. The second phase that we see is decision. You can imagine if you see an image like this, every person in this room thinks of some decision, some defining moment, some, uh, some choice that you made that kind of was determining for the rest of your life. This is where Israel is. In the same way that in Luke 15, the prodigal son made a decision to go back home. Now back in 1 Kings, this time in chapter 18, Elijah is going to talk to Ahab and the nation of Israel. And he's going to call them to the top of Mount Carmel. Here's the first image of what Mount Carmel looks like. You can imagine uh, the green um, and, you know, the, the trees, the leaves, everything is beautiful. And he's calling them. Eventually, you'll see to have a contest between the gods at the top of this mountain. But that's the view going up. Imagine if you were alive in that day and you got to the top of Carmel and you looked down. This is what you'd see. After three years of drought, this is the state of affairs. So... Elijah is about to confront the people, and this is what he says. Basically, pick one. Verse 21 of chapter 18. Elijah went before the people, and he said, How long will you waver? I go back and forth between two opinions. If the Lord is God, I want you to follow him. But if Baal is God, I want you to follow him. He's like, it appears that you're attempting to serve both. And it's obvious, it's obvious in the choices that you're making. How long are you going to dance? How long are you going to waver? How long will you go back and forth between the two? In other words... Elijah's telling them, will you please make up your mind already? Because the creator of the universe wants an exclusive relationship with you and no other gods. Which is a great time to think about, okay, what does God want most? The New Testament. Someone once asked Jesus, okay, what is most important? What does God want most? In Mark chapter 12, Jesus said this, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all, all of your heart and with all, all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. What does God want most, according to the text? He wants all. He wants all of you. Meaning, when you press into the scripture, the Jesus-centered life is an invitation for Jesus to direct us in all areas of life. Let's press in with the guys in the room today. To the dads, this means areas like our marriage, our money, our job, our family. Like Jesus should be driving the decisions made in those areas. I want to ask a question on behalf of those four areas. Is there a chance you're experiencing a drought in one of those four areas? And what if, like the nation of Israel right now, you're being called to a time to make a decision? How much longer are you going to waver? Like the way you want to do marriage or the way God wants you to do it? The way you want to work or how God's called you to work? The way you should raise a family you think based on how you were raised or weren't raised or the way God wants you to raise a family? Like, like what if today was a time for you, just like Israel, a time where you were called to, to make a decision. I mean, today was the day that you would, you would be called to stop something. To start something. To restart something that you have done again and again. And then you stop and then you start to restart. Or to eventually just, just to begin the process of getting unstuck. Because when you look back in your life at that area, the best way you could describe it right now, it's, it's kind of a drought. It's been vacant for a while. Well, if we get back to the story, Elijah tells the people, I want you to pick one. It's time to make a decision. And the people don't see a th say a thing. 
So we come to phase three. First is a drought, then a decision, and now comes exposure. Meaning Elijah is going to expose their counterfeit God. Elijah is going to shed light on their fraud God. The question that we should ask is, am I willing to expose my counterfeit gods? 1 Kings 18, verse 26, so they took the bull given to them. This is the prophets of Baal. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. These men are desperate, trying to get a false god to do something. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. He's talking trash. He says, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he needs to be wakened. When I was a kid, how many people in here uh, remember, maybe you were young enough to remember this. Your parents had a Bible. It was hardback and it was green and it said the living Bible. Show of hands. Anybody? Uh, That Bible is actually a paraphrase, kind of like the message paraphrase. But I remember reading that Bible as a kid and reading this story. And all of a sudden, I developed a love for the Bible like no one's business, um, especially the Old Testament stories. Because in the Living Bible, it literally said, Elijah said, scream a little bit louder. Perhaps your God is on vacation. Perhaps he's taking a nap. And then he said in the Living Bible paraphrase, or perhaps he's on the toilet. I remember going to the other room to Dad. I'm like, Dad, this, this right here is where it's at. You got to teach out of this one. Here's what's happening. Elijah's calling out their counterfeit God. He's exposing it. I want you to know today, in a room like this, with people that are stuck in some space, God is still at work exposing counterfeit gods. There's a quote that was made famous in 300 AD by St. Augustine. Listen to this quote. There is a God-shaped hole in every heart that only he can fill. Fast forward to 1600. There's a man named Blaise Pascal that was a mathematician, a physicist. He was also an inventor and a theologian. He loved that quote so much that he built on it. He said in 1600, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus. So what I want to do today is I want to simplify that to bring exposure to the things that you and I perhaps have embraced as fraud gods. I want to simplify it to this phrase. There's a hole in my heart that only God can fill. Can you say it with me? There's a hole in my heart that only God can fill. I want to ask a question for you. Is that true? Like, really? And if that's true, why is it true? I want to tell you why it's true for all of us. Specifically for me, because my heart is a bottomless pit of need. When you see this image, it should shape the way you think of your heart. This is why some in this room were raised in a home with little to no affirmation. And you have learned from that day till now to perform well. You're driven by performance. Slowly you become an affirmation junkie. There's no amount of praise, no amount of affirmation that is enough. You've got to ask the question, why? Well, it's because this. Because there's a hole in my heart that only God can fill. My heart's a bottomless pit of need. Or perhaps some of you in this room are like chasing success, business success. 
and you've climbed the ladder. Maybe you've had some tough times, but you, you've climbed the ladder, and there's the pressure to perform, and there's the weight of carrying this forward and outdoing last semester, outdoing last quarter, outdoing last year. You're in a new position, and you were just driven to go there. Understand, the difficulty with being driven on those things is every week, every semester, every year, it goes back to zero. And you do it again, and you do it again and again, and you'll find that no success is enough to ever fill you. Why? Because there's a hole in your heart that only God can fill. And your heart is a bottomless pit of need. Maybe you were raised with barely enough to get by. As a kid, your family was going paycheck to paycheck, but, but you've kind of changed that. You've given your family a little bit more stability, so much so that you're, you're actually doing well. I guarantee you'll never get to the point where you make this statement. You know what? Now we're good. We're fine. Because more is never enough. I've yet to meet someone that says, you know what? I'm good now. I've hit the top. Do you know why, why that's not common? Because there is a hole in our heart that can only be filled by God. And our heart's a bottomless pit of need. And how about your appearance? Your physique? Beauty today is applauded. Beauty today is desired. Beauty today is measured. But beautiful people look into the mirror, and beautiful people always see flaws. They see imperfections. They will always see signs of aging. Beautiful people are never beautiful enough because there's a hole in my heart that only God can fill. My heart's a bottomless pit of need. There are people in this room they're stuck in a space where you're chasing intimate experiences in your mind, online, reconnecting with someone to connect intimately through socials, people looking for intimate experiences at work, and it's never enough. There is always a drive for more. This is how addictions are formed. You ask the question, why do I keep doing it? Let me tell you why. Because there's a hole in your heart that only God can fill. And your heart is a bottomless pit of need. It doesn't matter if you're driven like toward promotions. You're riveted and fixated on a job, a salary, a neighborhood, a car, a date, a marriage. You're fixated on all these things and it's all you think about. The reason is because there's a hole in your heart that only God can fill. And understand, our heart is a bottomless pit of need. What Elijah's doing is he's highlighting this issue to the nation of Israel. Like, he's telling them, look, counterfeit gods, can, they make promises that only the true God provides. And he's telling them, like, you guys have embraced and you're holding tight to a fraud God. And I'm telling you, it's not going to come through. Now, this story begins with a drought. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. There's droughts. Then there's a decision. And then he calls them to exposure, to see the false God for what it is. And then he talks about blessings. Elijah calls all the people together. The anticipation's high. 1 Kings 18, verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, I want you to come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been broken down. Baal had their turn. They couldn't get it call, fire called down, so it's, it's God's turn, and Elijah's going to be used. Verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward, and he prayed, Lord, this is a beautiful prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, meaning Jacob. Let it be known today that you're God of Israel, that I'm your servant. And I've done all these things because you told me to. Verse 37, answer me, Lord, 
Answer me so that these people will know that you, you're God. You're turning their hearts back again. And upon closing that prayer, there is lightning, there is thunder, there is fire, and it consumes everything. It is extreme. It's unexplainable in the eyes of the people. Verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried. They cried. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. It's just like that prodigal coming home. The story doesn't end here. After three years of drought, God's about to provide blessing. The story actually ends with Elijah separating himself from the people. And he faces the sea on the other side of Mount Carmel. Elijah gets on his knees and lowers his face to the ground. And think about this. After three years, he begins to pray for rain. This week I was with some friends and uh, we kind of laughed about this at staff on Tuesday. I think it was Sunday. Uh, One of the guys said, you know, you're getting old when we love the sound of rain. Sunday evening, Mike, we were with some friends and, and that sound came. Imagine that sound coming for the first time in three years. And that's the very thing you live for. Provided everything for your family. Understand, um, these people are starting to experience the blessing of God. Here's what's scary. Often we move from stuck to starting because we crave his blessings. And that's good. Ready? But what if we move from stuck to starting because we crave him? I mean, you learn in this story what kind of drought can God send on people like you or me? nation of Israel, any kind he wants. And what kind of blessing can God send on you and me, the nation of Israel, whoever? The kind of blessing he sends is whatever kind he wants. So let's go back to this image. I want you to think, is there any area of your life Especially to the dads, you're stuck. We all know it takes enormous effort to get unstuck. We said it at the very beginning. And my prayer all week has been for this day that on behalf of the men especially, but every person in this room, my prayer is that every heart will find hope. Meaning the God of this story will change your story in your space if you let him. So as we close, can you just stare at the screen for just a second? Let's think about the drought. Is there an area of your life that you're going through a drought? You're stuck. Is it marriage, family, 
Did it work? Because there's some, something going on and you're just, you're so dry. How about this? It's, think about today, a time to make a decision. You got a choice. Like, he can be your Sunday God. You sit in a row. You listen, maybe take some notes, and you go on. Or, or he can be the God that has, in the words of Mark 12, all of you. All of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You have to make a decision. And hopefully today you will recognize the reason that we struggle so much. is because of this image. Our heart is a bottomless pit of need. And in your heart and my heart, there is a hole that only God can fill. The problem is we try to fill it with so many different things that are short-lived because false gods, fraud gods, counterfeit gods make promises that only the one God provides. And today, may you long for this, the blessings of God. But more than the blessings, may you long for him. Today's with, today, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I would encourage you to pray this prayer. In the quietness of this place, say, Dear God, here I am in this space. Will you meet me here? I don't want to be stuck anymore. God, I want to thank you for today. Thank you for a chance to look at a space that can be so frustrating for so many. It can be so messy, so twisted, and it takes an enormous work to get out. But I pray today that we would hold tight to hope because the God of this story will be the God of our story if we're willing to let him. I pray that you showed us areas that we might be going through a drought. I pray that you caused us to think that today is a day of decision. I pray that you would shine a light on those little fraud gods that we embrace, that make promises that only the one God can provide. And I pray that as we see how Israel received the blessing, that we wouldn't just long for your blessings, but we would long for you. I pray that you'd have your way through the lyrics of this song today. I pray that you'd have your way in the hearts of every person. And I pray this in Jesus' name.